This is Mark Stein, and welcome everybody right here to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future. Here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And also broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. And today on Sound Bites, we'll talk with Ruth Tam, who wrote an interesting article for the Washington Post called How It Feels When White People Shame Your Culture's Food, Then Make It Trendy. And we'll talk to her later on in today's broadcast. But first, we continue our ongoing discussion about organic food. And I'm joined by farmers and people in the world of agriculture to explore what this organic label label really means and what happens behind the scenes to give our food that organic label and distinction and why some people are even moving away from it and saying it's not all it's hacked up to be. And there's been a huge explosion in organic food. Some people think it's becoming just another commercialized industry, which destroys the reason why they wanted to do it in the first place. Others say it's our only way to health. And we've seen articles recently about uh, the FDA and the Department of Agriculture recalling organic food, um, and that's tripled from last year's numbers. 7% of all the food recalled now in 2015 has come out of the organic world. So what's all that really about? Steve Savage is the agricultural techn- an agricultural technical consultant and blogger and speaker, uh, and Jay Martin's a farmer at the Provident Organic Farm. And Steve and Jay, welcome. Good to have you here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Glad to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. So this is whole controversy, Steve Savage. I mean, the the idea of organic. I remember, you know, when I first, I remember my parents getting um, the Rodale magazine back in the fifties and sixties, the sixties, and the, the the small and about why we should kind of do our flowers and do our food organically and building the soil. And there was this notion about what organic means, but it seems like over the last. 40, 50 years, we have very different definitions of what that is. Well, you're right. I mean, the, the origins of organic go back, actually, even early in the 20th century. But I also uh, first heard about it through the Rodale publication. My grandfather <laughs> back in the 1950s and 60s was an organic gardener. And uh, then uh, I, I met some of the pioneers of sort of small-scale commercial organic uh, in the late 70s in California. And um, from the very beginning, I think the the fundamental insight of organic was that you really need to be paying attention to the health of the soil. You'll you'll often hear people say, well, until such and such a time, everything was organic. And it's like, no, actually, (laughs) a lot of the way that farming was going on, even in, you know, the 1800s, was sort of a mining operation and people not really taking care of the soil. So that was the fundamental insight of organic, and it was it was a very positively focused thing, and, and I, it, you know it certainly remains that for many of the people who are, who are growing that way. But by the time it became something certified, you know, through the USDA and all of that, you had to pin it all down to rules. It becomes much more of a, a negatively focused definition, sort of a list of well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, and to me, it, it that kind of loses some of the, the original value. I mean, I know there are a lot of farmers here <clears throat> who have kind of walked away from the organic classification. I mean, Jay, your, your farm is organic, but it's it's not an easy thing to say. You're organic, right? Well, um, I guess you, you actually can't say that you're organic unless you're <laughs> certified by the, by the way the law reads. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, I've, had, I've had a long reputation of having grown organically, so I haven't found the need, uh, for, you know, to be able to, to have to tell people that. Most of my customers know me. I, I'm uh, primarily direct marketing, which means I, you know, I speak to my customers at every market. Uh, they're welcome to ask me any question they'd like to ask me about any of my growing practices, and I'll always be truthful with them. Uh, it's what I call face certification. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's, right, right, right. I'm not laughing at you, but with you, yes. I understand. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um you know, it's a direct relationship between the consumer and the farmer, which, you know, I know that's not always possible, but it, I think it's uh, probably one of the best ways for anybody to ensure their, their food supply is to, to know who their farmer is or their group of farmers. But what does it mean for you to be able to call your farm organic? Well, that was kind of a loophole in the uh, law. Um, actually, a woman in Maine who'd been an organic farmer since uh, the 50s. And she was um, had been certified 
by uh, MOFCA, the Maryland Organic Food and Gardening, or the uh, Maine Organic Food and Farming Association. And um, she, ra- she had named her farm uh, in the name. It was Organic Farm. Um, and she uh, brought it up that uh, um, during the comment period that, you know, do I have to change the name of my farm? And as it turned out, that the, uh, the, as the law read, you did not have to change the name of your farm. So I slid in under that and named my farm Provident Organic Farm. <laughs> so so, so that, does that mean, just be clear before I turn back to Steve, that, that you, don't, you, you do not have to follow the guidelines USDA sets up? Uh, I, no, I do not have to, but I, but I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't use any, any materials that are not on the OMRI list, which, um, that's the Organic Materials Review Institute. Um, but I, but I, uh, my objection to the organic certification program is a couple of objections, one of which is that, um, I think it stifles innovation, um, you know, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, uh, famous, maybe not famous, but a quote of his is that um, the, the difference between leadership and or leaders and followers is innovation. And I, and I think that the organic so-called movement um, was started and, and nurtured through those early years, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, by innovators willing to share their information with each other and bounce ideas off each other and and um, you know we all kind of shared what we were doing um, and helped each other um, to bring in a third party uh, to me is not necessary so see Stav, jump in here with, with your thoughts I mean because I mean you 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 even question sometimes the validity of the notion that organic is somehow healthier am I wrong about that no uh, and and the problem is that um, the definition of organic uh, is really sort of a pre-scientific philosophical definition, and that, that was the problem. As, as, as you know, what Jay is describing is just people innovating and doing things. But you know, before we really understood toxicology, before we understood a lot of environmental science, before we understood very much about you know, carbon footprints, um, it sort of the best they could do for what is safe is what is natural. And the problem is that that isn't actually an adequate definition of what is the safest or what is the, you know, sort of most environmentally beneficial way to go. So, you know, I, I guess a, a clear example would be in, in farming, one of the problems that you have is you, you want to get your fertilizers into the plants, but not into the groundwater, not washing away. You know, you, you basically want to get it all very efficiently delivered. Well, in in the age of, uh, of drip irrigation and the ability to sort of spoon feed the nutrients in through the irrigation water, probably far and away the most efficient way to deliver just the nutrients you need is that. Well, that's really hard to do with natural sources of, of nutrients. You know, it's a lot easier to do with a, a water-soluble set of things. But that could never qualify. Um, you know, and, and, and the problem also is just there isn't any real clear-cut, simple definition of natural. That ends up now being kind of a committee's decision. <laughs> and it's often right. a very contentious one that goes on. I was just looking at the California pesticide use data just for a talk I have to give later and looking at what, what gets used on California crops. And one of the hugest categories that gets used are things that are basically mineral oils, paraffinic oils, uh, what they call petroleum distillates. Well, those actually qualify under the Omri statute is natural. Now, I, I don't think some petroleum derivative is what the consumer imagines. And the truth is, it's it's a perfectly safe sort of thing. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, what's natural? That that's not a precise term, and it's definitely not the easiest way to understand what's safe. Some of the nastiest chemicals known in the world are natural chemicals. So, I mean, so so, so in, in when you hear Jay, I mean, that's that's this is, I think, why it's important to kind of wrestle with these things. I mean, because we do get confused when we hear uh, when we hear 
natural or organic, what those things really mean. As you said earlier, part of the reason people buy your vegetables and buy your these things you, you grow and produce is because of you, because of the handshake, because they know you, because they trust you. That, that, yeah, that's true. Um, um, another one of my objections with organic certification, I think, is what Steve is, is talking about, is that I, I thought that when the USDA took it over, it would it would set the stage for um, corporate entry into the marketplace, and that my sense there was that um, there would be a lot of efforts made to dilute the standards, and I think anybody would agree that we've seen that happening in the last, say, I think, 15 years since USDA took it over. And, and also, the, the standards set, they establish a floor, meaning that you, um, you can't do any worse than this. And that, and that floor is heading for the basement, in my opinion. I, I'd rather, I would rather work uh, toward the ceiling, you know, soil building, improving the soil conditionings, conditions, um, I, I use drip irrigation, but I, I don't run any materials through it. Um, my goal is to prepare the soil uh, pre-planting and uh, for whatever crop it's going to be in that, in that bed or in that area uh, and prepare that soil to, to carry that crop through. It doesn't always work. There's times I've had to um, sort of rescue a crop with foliar feeding or or uh, side dressing with a fertilizer, but most of the time I've been fortunate enough to be able to to um, provide for the crop in pre-planting. And I think that's what Steve is is talking about. There's, you know, rescuing, or I, I call that rescuing when you when you have to run th- something through a, a drip system or or um, overhead uh, with foliar feeding or something. To me, that's having to rescue a crop. So when when I when somebody goes to the store. And they go immediately the organic aisle. I mean, every time I go to whether it's um, a local grocery store here or, you know, a, a Wegmans or, or even if you go to, to, to Walmart or Whole Foods, wherever you go, and people kind of flock to the organic aisle of the organic vegetables and pull them off. Um, so a couple questions here. So I'm curious. Steve, I'll go to you first and Jade just jump right in. So what's the difference between that organic carrot I'm picking up from um, – from California, uh, or wherever it's made, uh, grown, I should say, and the ones I might buy from Jay's farm, someone else's farm, who I know who lives down the road from me. Steve, you want to go with that one? Or? Well, I, I think one of the biggest differences would be that, uh, you know, Jay's going to have a crop for a certain window of the year, but he, he lives in a temperate climate. And, uh, you know, there's, there's only certain times of the year when he's going to be able to, to produce. Um, that's, that's always been the reason that a lot of the, the, you know, stuff comes from places like Florida and California. The, the, we have the climates that allow you a more extended um, period of, of production. And, and, you know, that's kind of a nice thing for consumers because, uh, you know, to have a, a bigger window on when you can be eating fresh fruits and vegetables. And you know, there's plenty of information to say, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. But I think the the other thing is that if you're getting that carrot from California, 10 to 1, that comes either from um, Bolt House Farms or from Grimway. And in both cases, they produce both organic and conventional. And they're simply, you know, they, they would just say we're, we're meeting you know, customer demand, and uh, the same companies grow both, and honestly, I, I would feel perfectly comfortable buying either of those. I mean, I'd love to buy, you know, from somebody nearby like uh, like Jake, just because there are certain things that there's tremendous advantage to being able to let something get really fully mature before you pick it, and you can't always do that, uh, you know, with something that you're going to ship long distances. But that said, um, whether or not those are safe to eat, whether it's organic or not organic, um, is something based on EPA regulations of of the pesticides. The EPA regulates the pesticides, whether they're organic or conventional. And the USDA does extensive sampling of food within the chain uh, and looking for residues, and they 
confirm over and over again that there are not dangerous residues. So to me, the, the biggest advantage of buying from Jay is that, that he can get you really fresh local and uh, stuff, and, and that I would agree there's tremendous space value there. Um, but if you know, you're going to feed your family a healthy diet uh, and you want to feed fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables, they can come from other places at other times. Jay? Um, well, I think all that is correct. I would, I would say that, um, you know, the, the recent trend, what we're experiencing now is people are, are leaning toward locally accessed food. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, we see a rise in our sales in the farmer's markets, more people coming and, and um, accessing locally produced food. They want to support their local farmers. Um, and in addition, I think uh, another growing trend in, in, the, in the organic sector is uh, high tunnels, uh, passive solar yeah. greenhouse systems where we now can extend our seasons uh, at least three weeks on both ends by growing in high tunnels. I mean, I, I can grow year-round in there. There's, oh, I don't know, there's probably 25 or 30 crops that I can successfully grow in a tunnel through the winter so, and I've been, all, all three of the markets I've sold in in the last years um, have been convert, converted to year-round markets um, by, by my presence and then other people who have said, yeah, well, I've got eggs too, and yeah, I can bake bread in the wintertime, and, um, you know, my cows don't stop producing milk all winter. So, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so the local markets can, if they're supported, um, they can grow to uh, satisfy a year-round market, at least in this area. And um, I don't know, Steve, if you ever read anything about Elliot Coleman. I mean, he's in Harborside, Maine, and he's he's going year-round up there, uh, which is that's a pretty strong statement about the capacity to grow year-round. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if it's well, and I think that that's backed up to your your idea that innovation is so important. And you're right. I mean, the innovations around. Um, you know, protected culture of various types, or even vertical culture, or whatever. You know, those, those, that that that's all fantastic, and and uh, that you know that happens both for organic and non-organic. Um, I think the one that to me is more disturbing, though, as a trend in organic, is that uh, it's it's a lot harder to grow of you know certain row crops like wheat or corn or soybeans or something like that. Uh, efficiently organic, and they're just the supply in the U.S. and Canada has not been keeping up with demand for for organic mm-hmm. animal feed and certain organic ingredients. And the really disturbing, extremely non-local side of organic is in non-perishable ingredients, so in sort of organic processed foods, and some of that, and and in feeds for animals for organic. And you've got that coming out of places like China and India, and you can have some serious problems there. And I'm sorry, the organic rules do not protect you from cadmium in the soil or lead in the air or aflatoxin in the corn that nobody bothers to check for. And, uh, you know, again, that's something that's completely foreign to today's kind of organic farming. So, I mean, a part of that, I mean, there's, there is... So there's a huge confusion in the minds of people about what we're eating and 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 what all this really means. I think that's part of what's stimulating this part of our discussion around organic foods. And so, so but I, I there's the, also the argument, Jay. I mean that that organic foods are healthier, less pesticides. Now we don't have anybody in the program who's definitely going to say yes to that, but most many people do believe that and think that's true. Um, and so, how would you discuss that with your customers or with yourself? Well, I'm I'm of a mind, and I think anybody would agree with this, that the, uh, food has its highest nutritional value the instant that it's picked. Right. Uh, it, you know, it, 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 and to me, it goes from ripen to rotting at that moment in time. The quicker you can get it to the to the consumer, the higher nutritional value it's going to have. That um, that is the true value of food is its nutritional value, not supply and demand, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't even come into play um, with the value of food. Um, so, And I, I would say that because 
if for no other reason, because we're not using toxic chemicals, you, um, you would have to think that it would be healthier in the long run if we're not introducing toxins into our bodies, um, regardless of how it's grown. Uh, you know, it may be maybe a conventional product might be as high in nutritional value as a as a uh, organic product, but but with 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 no toxins involved in the organic growing, I think you'd have to say that that um, it would be healthier. I I read a uh, in a Acres USA. I read an article about the relationship between the use of glyphosate uh, and uh, autism. And on the um, on the graph from 2001 to 2013, the two lines followed each other right up the scale. Hmm. Um, but, so, but Jay, do you, have you ever seen the graph that shows the line of organic sales and autism? They do exactly the same thing. Those sorts of relationships are not how you figure out if that's how it works. I mean, there's a perfect correlation of autism and organic sales, and I don't think anyone believes that's the cause. Well, but but I mean, I think one of the things that we've heard a lot on this program and discussions in other areas, especially around GMOs and other things, whether you agree with the genetically modified organisms or not, is that one of the places where research has not been done um, is in the long-term effects of the of of the toxicity of the things we put on our plants, of the herbicides we're using, without having before they're okay for the for the marketplace to use. I mean, I mean, the, so it, you know, I mean that's. One of the reasons people lean towards organic, those who are more and more wanting to do it, and which is why Walmart is picking it up so people of moderate income can also afford organic food, is because people are worried about the consequences of what they don't, of what's in the food that you can't see nor taste. Okay, but let me bring this up. You say, what about long-term exposure to a toxin? In any cauliflower or eggplant or tomato or potato you eat, no matter how it was grown, the plant itself makes nicotine, which is a very, very toxic material, right? But we've all been eating nicotine and capsaicin and caffeine and all sorts of natural toxins in our foods for a really long time. And it isn't just, is it toxic? It's what is the dose that's there? Now, the dose of nicotine that's in a eggplant is dramatically closer to something scary than the residue of even, you know, the sort of most potent insecticide that you might be able to find in modern produce. So uh, <laughs> this idea that you can avoid toxins. Yeah, but is, that's that you can avoid mixed. toxins, but I mean, we, the, the, I mean, there have been a lot, I mean, the, the difference is, is the amount of herbicides and toxins we put in our fields what it's doing to our water, what it's doing to the land, and what it's doing to us. That's, I mean, but, but don't you believe that anything has been accomplished by the environmental movement over the last 40 years, 50 years? I mean, th- this idea that this is somehow uncontrolled and nobody's looking at it, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's been what? looked at tremendously, including the long-term effects. I, I mean, people I, can just come out and say, oh, nobody's done that, but they haven't looked well, I mean, we've covered it pretty thoroughly on this program in the last four or five years. I mean, I, and, I, and I think that there's a lot left in terms of what we allow to go into the marketplace and go into our soil without that kind of testing or knowledge. Um, that, that I think that's the problem. We want, we, we, it's, it's not deep enough. I mean, I mean, I think those, the, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, I mean, I understand. I I'm pretty familiar with the testing that goes on and the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on it. Um, and, and <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not like the EPA has not been out there doing its job for, you know, ever since it was created. Jay, any thoughts on what we've just been? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to just go off into that for a moment, but <laughs> let me bring you back. Well, I, I couldn't hear very well what Steve was saying. Um, um, I'll make a few comments. I hope they're appropriate. I, okay. I, um, our bodies, I think, are capable of handling um, toxins that they recognize, um, but but not toxins that are recently have recently been introduced into our 
into our bodies that they that they just don't know how to deal with. And I think there's an there's a an accumulation that happens in cases like that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm anything but scientific, um, but that that's just what I uh, would. That's what I would offer on that. Yeah, I mean, when I when I look at things like the the, and I remember reading this piece an article I think it was a while back in the New England Journal of Medicine about nicotine and things like potatoes and tomatoes and things like that that clearly exists, but it's, a it's not the same thing as inhaling it. And that when you cook them, the water dissipates it, so it really isn't the same. You can say it's there, but it doesn't have the same effect on our bodies as it would be if I was going to smoke a camel or a Marlboro or anything else like that. <laughs> well, that's sort of what I'm I'm saying. It is true, but capable. actually, nicotine is is um, toxic orally. I mean, it, yeah, it, but the study, uh, it, and of course, the way we we test this is you know you feed it to rats. Um, people would prefer if you did it to lawyers, but we, we do it to rats. And, um, the, you know, it doesn't take very much to kill the rat. And, you know, that's, that's our model. And nicotine is also one of these things that, you know, can get through your skin and be toxic. And that's actually quite unusual. But again, it all depends on how much of it's there. Um, the, the body has detoxification methods that are, pretty robust. Uh, you have this system of uh, monoamine oxidases in, in your, your liver, and, and you know, there are just a lot of things that we have just because the world is kind of a toxic place. And, uh, you know, everything that's evolved to, to live off of, of, particularly off of plants, has, has got to be able to deal with toxins. So, so Jay, I'm, I'm, you know, when we talk about again this organic certification and, and how the, the, how you view what it means to grow healthy plants in healthy soil. Um, well, it's a stewardship thing, I, I think, Mark. Um, you know, I I kind of feel like you know we don't really own anything while we're here. We we're just renting it from the next generation or the generations that follow. And so, um, I guess part of my goal is to is to leave it better than I found it, um, and building the soil for whoever comes along and wants to till this farm that I've been working for thirty years. I think it's stewardship. And and I think many people worry about the the the, the as we see the commercialization, if for want of a better term, of. The organic of, of the organic world um, that that changes the nature of what that food is because we're be doing it again on a, this mass level. I mean that that Steve, I don't know if you that that is something I've been reading more about, and I'm not sure where we're going to go with that. Yeah, I, I I mean I I certainly would agree that there's sort of a difference in uh, you know. Somebody like Jay, somebody like my my old friends in, in Davis that were kind of the beginning of, of organic. And in fact, the term my, my old friend uses, he, he calls it grade B organic. Um, <laughs> and so he, he actually has very mixed feelings about sort of this mainstreaming uh, of organic. Um, but then on the other hand, um, you know, if, if it was only... People like Jay, it, it would be a really, really small segment. <laughs> it would be what? A really small segment, you know. Uh, it, it's in terms of, to me, of what's um, possible. The mainstream, you know, that it's gone mainstream in a way. I, um, I know it's probably utopian thinking that um, all of us could find a farmer, you know, and then that farmer would grow for us. So sort of in the <laughs> the original CSA model um, that that was introduced in this country back in the mid '80s. Uh, that was that was what that CSA model was, where everything the farm produced went to the subscribers of the CSA, um, and that's been that's been morphed through many evolutions and changed into a lot of you wouldn't recognize some of them as CSAs anymore. And I know that's probably utopian thinking, uh, and I'm I'm glad that. Um, that it's going more mainstream, but at the same time, um, I'd like to see more of a commitment on the part of the large-scale producers 
or the corporate producers, I'd like to see more of a commitment than just, uh, I think in many cases all it is is input substitution. Uh, rather than using chemical inputs, they're using organic inputs, but their head isn't any different than it was two years ago. Yeah, exactly. And also where we're getting many of our organic vegetables now from California, um, we're seeing what it's doing to the land in California, sucking up the aquifers, and how long can that last? Well, I would. Well, I think if you actually could, I think if you could actually meet some of the people that we're talking about, you you might, you know, people are a lot easier to demonize if you've never met them. No, it's not this question of demonization. Um, I'm not demonizing anybody. I would never do that. Um, but I'm just saying that 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 the uh, not, and I would never demonize, demonize the farmer him or herself because they're doing they're doing the work. And I mean that that's how they have to make the living. Whether it's a farmer having to grow chickens in the very conventional way because that's how they got to survive in this world. I mean that's 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 that that's real. So no, but I mean just when you when it gets as large as it is, which is why you have to have the federal government kind of overseeing, saying what it wasn't organic, as opposed to saying um, to, to Jay Martin. Uh, you've been doing this for years, and and you know you 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 know what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's that's part of the problem. The complexity makes these rules that aren't necessarily real. You know, in 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 terms of how we define what organic is. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is that uh, during the it was I think it was in 1990 that Congress said. USDA, you figure out a national organic standard, and it wasn't until 2002 that they hammered it out. And the reason that it took that long was that the USDA is pretty much a science-based organization, and they really wanted rules that had to do with, you know, what we know about the science and about the safety and and all that kind of stuff. And uh, my, my friends from the organic community said that the real pushback on that came from sort of the organic consumers. And, you know, you get organizations like Organic Consumers Association, and they're the ones who were adamant that it could only be the definition based on natural and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that sort of fanatic side of it came in more from the organic consumers than from the organic farmers. So, Jay, I'm curious how you like to see it, how you would like, how you think it should be structured. The organic certification program. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in in the early years, we were we were certified by the Maryland Department of Agriculture in '91. That was the first year that they had the program, mm-hmm. and that was um, uh, that was a group of farmers certifying each other, and the certified naturally grown, which it does not fall under the organic certification program by the USDA. They that was an outgrowth of kind of a rejection of the USDA um, handling the standards. Hmm. Um, and that was uh, farmers certifying neighbor farmers. Now, I suppose there's probably plenty of room for that to get warped around, but um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just like anything. But, right, right. You know, I can see backyard bribes happening and things like that, <laughs> I suppose. But um, I, I, I think we need to localize our food supply, localize our certification. Um, to me, the smaller, uh, the, I think it's a law of physics that um, the smaller the unit, the better it interacts with its environment. Um, you know, so I would like to see things done. Uh, I would be happy to be certified if it was a, if it was a local group, say a Delmarva group that, that certified uh, me here and other farmers on the shore. I would I would be happy to participate in that. Um, I, I, I the smaller the better. <laughs> it's as simple as I can put it. So now I understand what you're saying. And so 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 what what would what, what if if you were kind of speaking to other people about this in terms of what it would mean to be organic? I mean, how would you think of it being certified other than the way it's done now by um, the DOA, Department of Agriculture? Well, I, th- I think I just explained that. Uh, no, you didn't. Know, I'm just saying because, you know, I mean, the, one of the reasons that f- farmers like um, the people like Joan Norman and, and the Normans, their one-straw farm in Baltimore County, right. I mean, in Pennsylvania, the, why they, they backed away from the organic label was because they, they, they didn't think it was worth it and it was onerous to meet those 
qualifications? Well, I think part of that is um, is a, is a, the, a marketing switch that the Normans made. They're they're very close friends of mine. Yeah, they're good people. Yeah, they're great people, and I've known them. I've, I used to grow plants for Drew, Drew and Joan mm-hmm. years and years ago. I've known them for, over, for at least thirty years, um, and I think they've they've gradually over the last, I guess, maybe ten or twelve years, have gotten away from wholesaling, and they they pretty much do just a CSA now. I think. Yep. Yep. Um, and so that's that's sort of in line with my certification thing. People know Drew, know Joan, know that they'll they'll maintain their standards of growing. Um, you know, I don't know how many shares they have. I think it's upwards of 1,500 families or maybe 2,000, um, which is a huge CSA. But there's a there's an element of trust and faith that exists in the, in that um, in that relationship. Um, so there's no need for a third party to establish that. For, for anybody it's it's established it's it's a direct you know part of direct marketing is getting the middleman out well we can do that in other areas too um we don't need a third party involved if if you can establish a relationship of of trust and faith then we don't need a third party involved and i guess and i think that in some ways steve savage this trust and faith can exist on a local level regional level but it can't exist on a national level it's impossible. Well, I, it can. It's just, I don't know. It, do, does, it does take the third party in, the, in those right. cases. Yeah. Right. Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I would just say, I, I mean, the model of, of, you know, the CSA and then the complete local connection and all of that, that's fantastic model. It's just not how you're going to feed, you know, 300 billion people in America. Um, you know, there are places where you could do that, but you're not going to do that for everything you eat. I mean, if you want to eat some tropical fruit, you're not going to be doing that. If if you want really high quality bread wheat, well, that wheat is kind of like wine. Wheat needs to be grown in the right environment to have the quality that you want for it. You really want that wheat coming out of North Dakota or Alberta or someplace like that. So, you know, it, food is an incredibly diverse thing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, vegetables and local fruit and all of that is just one component of the world food supply. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, just the beginning of so much more we can talk about. And uh, I really appreciate the time that both of our guests have given us in this segment of uh, Sound Bites here on the Mark Steiner Show. You just heard the voice of Steve Savage, who's an agricultural technology consultant and blogger and speaker. We'll be linking to his work uh, on our website. And Jay Martin, a farmer who runs Provident Organic Farm in Bivalve, Maryland. And we'll link into his site as well. Uh, and, Jay, when we're down your neck of the woods in the next week, I'm going to have to come down and uh, check out your vegetables. You're certainly welcome. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, Steve Savage and Jay Martin, thank you both so much. appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you. We have to take a very brief break. And when we return, I'll be joined by Ruth Tam, who just wrote a fascinating piece in the Washington Post, How It Feels When White People Shame Your Culture's Food, Then Make It Trendy. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark Steiner right here on, on your Sound Bites program. Our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. And, of course, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. There was an article that caught our attention this week uh, in the Washington Post. It's been making the rounds on social media. It was called, How It Feels When White People Shame Your Culture's Food and Make It Trendy. It was written by, written by Kojo Namdi's web producer and She the People contributor, Ruth Tam, who joins me now. Ruth, welcome. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Thanks for having me, Mark. You know, I, I love the article because, um, you know, when people – people don't get it. <laughs> I think <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have just called it that. Yeah. <laughs> Probably would have saved me some days. <laughs> exactly. People just don't get it. But it's true. I mean, you know, because we – and we don't think about even those things when we say we're going for Chinese food. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, that that there's, a, there's a world and a culture and a life behind the food. Yes. I think I mean – I think uh, a lot of people – 
forget the culture behind the food because Chinese food has been a part of American culture for a long time. But it's important to remember that it's Chinese American food and not the food that a lot of Chinese immigrants and descendants of Chinese immigrants make for themselves at home. So it's important to make that distinction and not to associate Chinese American food with a different culture and a different story. It has its own story. And I think all food and all uh, cuisines that we uh, seek out and pay for and want to have an experience with um, needs to be needs to be investigated just because uh, knowing those stories makes the experience of eating out a richer and fuller one. So when you start the story off, and if I mispronounce this, please correct me. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> Is it in Gao Lam? Um, it's Nao Lam. Nao Lam? Yes. Nao Lam. Okay, Nao Lam. So you, you start talking about the Nao Lam that your grandfather prepared and your experiences feeling and smelling it but also your experiences of what happened when people came over, white people, your classmates. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, the the dish is actually one that my, my father is well known for. Up until recently, uh, I hadn't had it outside of my family's home. I had never had it um, cooked by anybody else before. So while I have many favorite foods of my father's, this is one that I associate just with him. And <laughs> it's also one of the most pungent things that... Uh, is, uh, you know, it just really attacks you <laughs> when it's being made. And uh, I want to put this out there. I don't really love the smell of, uh, of boiling meat or cow stomach either. It's not very appetizing. And when I was growing up, I didn't love the smell. And it's important to, to know that, I think, for people to know that uh, there are plenty of parts of Chinese cuisine and Chinese culture that I find difficult to reconcile with. Uh, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> So, you know, when I was growing up, this smell was pervasive in my home and the smells of all kinds of dishes. And uh, But I never felt shame because of it until I was taught to feel shame by other people who weren't familiar with my family, weren't familiar with our story and our culture. And I think that's something that's important to, uh, to, to look at. Uh, I had always just assumed that my father was making me food, that it wasn't for me to complain about or to comment on in a negative way. And there was a way that he showed us love without having to say it really obviously. And so when someone took what was part of my family's uh, story and made it something to be ashamed of, that's when it kind of became this turning point for me. And uh, it happened early on in high school. And uh, after that, I kind of started to use, uh, to shy away from food and to, to kind of hide what was very obviously Chinese about me. And it wasn't until relatively recently that I became comfortable with um, trying Chinese food on my own again and cooking it on my own hmm. because for so long it had been a source of shame. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that um, it almost sounds in some senses traumatic. You know what I'm saying? It, it, just to, be, to have to kind of disassociate yourself from something that is you. Yeah, and it was a really uncomfortable experience. I remember it very vividly. It happened in the school cafeteria, um, not unlike uh, the, the scene from uh, Fresh Off the Boat that I mentioned in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to, to, to draw attention to the fact that it wasn't just one instance. A lot of people thought that I was calling attention to one moment and it was blowing it up out of proportion. But this wasn't one thing that happened to me um, that I... that. I carried through for the rest of my life and, and had this one comment from one person become the reason why I avoided Chinese food. That's not the case. Um, this is the kind of thing that happened in small ways throughout a lot of my adolescence. And after I wrote the piece, I found out that a lot of people have had the same experience too, which is both comforting and very, very sad at the same time. And um, what's even more traumatic, I think, are the ways that I remember hiding my identity and the ways that I remember trying to obscure my identity. And that is much more upsetting to me than mm-hmm. this actual moment, but it was kind of a turning point, I think, in my life. Yeah, I, I think this, because what your piece does, and even, you know, it's more important to me than just a foodie piece, you know. I mean, it, it's that some people might say, oh, that's what this is about, but no. I mean, it's it's that what America does to people is to say there's only one culture. Mm-hmm. Right and and the white culture dominates without realizing that's never been America. That's just how certain people want to define America. Yes, uh, I think that there's a lot of 
there are a lot of dishes that are now considered normal and American when not too long ago they were the ethnic food, the immigrant food of their time. I think uh, one of the best things about publishing such a polarizing piece like this is that I found out about so many other people's stories, and these are coming from people that you know you would consider Caucasian, and but you know. A couple generations ago, they definitely weren't um, part of the majority, and they weren't considered American. Uh, you know, for uh, Mediterranean or Middle Eastern cultures, pita bread or hummus, falafel, these are kinds of foods that were considered weird or strange, and now you find them on so many restaurants, and it's just you don't even bat an eye when you see hummus on an appetizer uh, listing. Uh, for Jewish culture, gefilte fish and lox and all these things that you see on, uh, I mean, maybe you don't see fish on, on a menu, but, uh, you know, locks you certainly see on a brunch menu, and these are things that people were made fun of before. And it's important to know that our, what we consider to be mainstream American culture is an amalgamation of, of all these different things and all these different peoples and all these different stories. And I was just trying to present my own, uh, but... Uh, there's so many, so many other threads to discover. I mean, you know, I, I was when you were reading this, I was thinking about the stories I've read about in the early 1900s. Um, the health departments of America attempted to ban pickles <laughs> because these Jews and Europeans and these Europeans can be making these pickles that they said caused disease. <laughs> Right? You weren't supposed to eat them. They were disgusting. I don't want to live in an America where there are no pickles. <laughs> I, I love pickles. And maybe there's this thing with pickled food. You know, it's, I mentioned in the piece that kimchi is becoming yes. this, this big thing. And it's, it's been around for a while. And I don't, it's not as if I think that uh, Asian food is now suddenly becoming uh, popular. It's just that I think the combination of the, digi- the digital age and the celebrity chef culture has made a new foodie experience where more people are going out uh, to eat for pleasure. And uh, in D.C., where I live, the top-rated restaurants are the ones that people are waiting outside hours to get into without reservations. And, uh, you know, this kind of culture is is feeding into to putting this kind of food out there, a kimchi is an example of one of those things. And for pickles, I guess that was maybe one of the first things, <laughs> the first pickled items that people turned their nose at that. But um, you see kimchi on, in little ways and in big ways all across these uh, fancy restaurant menus, and it's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, it was really interesting when you how you described t- 2015 is the year of the bone broth for the Today Show. <laughs> but <laughs> That was pretty... Pretty strange to see. Um, yeah, the the video. If anybody is is questioning whether or not this is an actual trend, it's definitely pumped up that way in the Today Show video. And this was at the beginning of the year, so I'm not sure how much of a how much of a trend it is in the middle of summer to get a hot steaming cup of bone broth on your way to work. But uh, the way it was described, I thought was very funny and very very odd. Um, definitely not a Chinese only thing to have bone broth with a meal, but I thought it was very silly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the way you describe it because that's what it is, the way they, they describe it as paleo dieters, as if the only time this existed was when we were um, uh, paleolithic beings. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, and it's just it was just a little bizarre to me to see that. I mean, it was almost also uh, lifted up as kind of like a beauty supplement too, which maybe. <laughs> Maybe in, in the past with the other people who have just drunk bone broth, that maybe those were the, the virtues they were extolling. But for it to be in the mainstream culture is is jarring. <laughs> well, it is jarring. I mean, so talk a bit about the authors that you were talking about in your piece. And again, I don't want to mangle names. And uh... <laughs> uh, Well, I am not uh, super familiar with her. I just learned about her recently. I was browsing through a bookstore in Boston a couple months ago, uh-huh. and I was just looking through the cookbook section. Uh, I always have these high hopes of buying cookbooks and, and making more recipes from them than I actually do. I do the same thing. So. <laughs> yeah, I, well, the, the, the cookbooks I think are most successful are the ones with the pretty pictures. So right. uh, she had a very attractive cookbook. Uh, her name is Mangji. She is a, I, and I might be pronouncing that wrong too, so, um, you know, there's, this is a safe space. Uh, 
She is a Korean cook who I think got her success initially through YouTube, but now she has this really incredible, really beautiful cookbook called Mangji's Real Korean Cooking. And I was just casually flipping through it, and I found this story about her Korean uh, soup soy sauce. And I found it heartbreaking, and I was with a Korean friend at the time, and we just talked about uh, the ways that we have also felt this way. Uh, if Just to refresh, uh, she grew up in South Korea where all her neighbors would boil their own soup soy sauce. Uh, but when she moved to the States, she was... Uh, making the soup soy sauce in Missouri, and her apartment manager uh, came knocking on her door and uh, was interrogating her. What's that smell? I got a complaint. Um, and she was so embarrassed and so traumatized that she didn't make the soup soy sauce again even after she moved back to Korea. And now that she is so successful in New York, she's a published cookbook author. People know her by just her name, just one name, you know, Madonna style. She she still cooks the soup, but at the base of this bridge, the Henry Hudson Bridge in New York City, at a portable gas burner, and she goes there and she brings like little activities for her to do, uh, and she does it there so no one complains. And I don't know uh, enough about her background and enough about her story that I want to, but I, I've always been really, it, it never left me, this the story of how this woman um, still carries around uh, the kind of embarrassment from Missouri and... Um, I, I don't know. I, I hope to meet her one day and ask her if this is what, if if I'm interpreting what was happening correctly and how she feels about it now, and if it's weird for her to see uh, certain restaurants take Korean cuisine and make it a little bit more palatable. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's a great thing. But like I said in in the in the column, sometimes it's a little weird. Ruth Ham, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. And you can read our article on WashingtonPost.com and also at SoundBitesRadio.org. Thank you again, Ruth. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. And our theme music is by Warren Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>